0: Thanks for listening to the World Religions Podcast by J.R. Foresteros. This is a class I'm teaching at Beaver Creek Church of the Nazarene, so from time to time you might hear some people asking questions. Uh, Unfortunately, due to the nature of the podcast recording software, it probably is not going to come through, but I'll do my best to represent those questions fairly in a way that you can hear them. Other than that, everything should be good to go, so enjoy the podcast and thanks again for listening. Well, uh, tonight we are talking about Judaism, so as always we're reviewing how? what our approach to uh, this methodology is. So we are, we are taking our approach to studying Judaism uh, from Paul's approach to evangelizing the Athenians on Mars Hill in Acts 17. And so what we saw in Paul's appro- approach is what we're going to try to do tonight. We're going to do a basic introduction to the Jewish worldview, uh, as basic as possible. We're going to then talk about areas of agreement between Judaism and Orthodox Christianity. And then we're going to go into some areas of disagreement between Judaism and our Orthodox Christian theology and practice. And the goal of this is for you to be equipped to build truth-seeking relationships with someone who is Jewish. Uh, now, I want to make a couple of provisos as we're getting started. Uh, probably all of all of the religions that we are going to be studying. Uh, I am the most anxious about this week and next week, Uh, this week being Judaism, next week being Islam, because uh, we as a culture are more familiar with these two religions than we are with any of the other religions that we're studying, at least we think we are. And because of the greater cultural familiarity, there's also a greater amount of noise in our understanding. There are lots of bad assumptions and good assumptions and assumptions, uh, and so we're going to try as clearly as possible to cut through that. So don't be afraid to ask questions. Uh, but what we're what, and what we're trying to do is as well as we can in 80 minutes ish. We're trying to equip you to build truth-seeking relationships with people who are alive today who are practicing Judaism. So. Uh, what we need to talk about then is which Judaism are we talking about? Because I will tell you that as a person who loves to teach the Bible, this very nearly became a grand epic lesson in Old Testament history. Uh, Because when you're talking about Judaism, the temptation is to just go back and talk about the religion that we find in the Old Testament or the religion that we find that Jesus practiced in the New Testament. The problem with that is that those are not modern Judaism. Uh, The religion that we find in the Old Testament is probably more accurately called ancient Yahwism. Uh, Worship of Yahweh is why we do that. And then by the time you get to Jesus' day, you're dealing with something that most scholars call Second Temple Judaism, because there were two temples and this was the Judaism that was happening during the second one. Um, After Second Temple Judaism, though, uh, this thing that Jesus did split in lots of ways, but the two main branches were early Christianity and rabbinic Judaism. And for the next mm, 1,500 years ish, those two religions developed in their own trajectories, and they re- they were related to each other. And we're going to be talking about that, but but they were not really the same religious tradition anymore. And then when you, that gets even more confusing when you get into today, because now you've got all kinds of all sorts of branches of both Judaism and Christianity, and it just seems like they keep dividing in more and more and more and more and more. And so, again, what we're talking about today is not the religion of, like, Abraham or Moses or David or any of them that we're going to talk about them a little bit. We're not talking about the religion that Jesus practiced, though certainly what we do today comes from that. We're trying to talk about what people who practice Judaism today do and then how we can best build truth-seeking relationships with them. So that's going to be all kinds of things. So first we need to talk about this ancient religion of Judaism. Uh, And this is where, again, if you were here the first two weeks when we talked about Buddhism and Hinduism, uh, you can really right away start to see some major differences in how we are much more similar to Judaism than we are to either of those two religions. Uh, Judaism believes, uh, their, their sacred history, is that a personal God created the world. So there was a time when there was not a world, and then this God brought that world into existence. Uh, if you compare that to Judaism or to uh, Hinduism or Buddhism, that's not how they believe, right? They believe that reality is just sort of an emanation of this thing that's not really a God because it's not really personal. It's just kind of this stuff that we can't really describe. And Judaism says, no, 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 no. There is a there is a person. There is a an entity, an intelligence that created everything, and we call that intelligence God. Uh, Now, that God then chose a particular people to model his way, his law, in the world. Uh, That was Abraham, and then all of Abraham's descendants. And so, quickly, in Abraham's lineage, his uh, grandson, Jacob, there was a moment in Jacob's life when he was on the run, he was camping out all by himself, and God shows up and wrestles with him all night. And it's this real weird little story in, in kind of in the early part of the Old Testament. But at as a result of that wrestling match, uh, God changes Jacob's name to Israel, which means wrestles with God. And that became how the Jewish people from that time forward understood their identity. They were the people that wrestles with God. And I think a really good way to understand that is that the Jewish people are always trying to figure out what is the way that we best represent God in the world. And the world's always changing, right? Things are always progressing. Cultures are always moving and changing and and all of that. And in all of those different ways and all those different places, we wrestle with this God that has revealed himself to us and how we present him to the world, how we live in such a way that the world can know that God through our example. Uh, Now, if you fast forward a whole lot, there was this big event called the Exodus. And so Jacob's descendants go to Egypt. But they get enslaved, and they're there for about 400 years. And God decides to rescue them from slavery. And so he raises up this guy named Moses. Uh, Moses gets his people, leads them out of Egypt. Uh, watch the movie because it's exciting if you don't know the story. And then in uh, Moses takes them to this mountain called Sinai. Moses goes up on the mountain and he receives from God something that Jews call the Torah. Okay? That is a Hebrew word and it means, sort of means law, but it's really law in the sense of like instruction or way. And so actually, we have a lot of connotations of the word law. We think like judges and a legal system and things like that. And it's actually, it's actually better to think of it as God's way, God's plan for humanity. And so I'm going to be, when I talk about the Torah tonight, I'm going to be talking about it as God's way. Or God's plan. Uh, but if you've ever heard it referred to as the law, that's that thats that thing that we're talking about. And so essentially Moses brings God's law, God's way, God's instruction down from Mount Sinai and delivers it to the people. And so now they have a clear understanding of who they are and how they are supposed to be in the world. And so that then if you fast forward a whole lot more years, you eventually get to a person called David. Uh, David, was. this is a, a point now where they've kind of transitioned out of a tribal nomadic culture into a more stable culture, and uh, they want a king. And so they choose a king, and things don't go so well with that king. And so this guy, David, who sort of rose from poverty, and uh, he you know, wasn't like a famous guy. He certainly wasn't the king's son. God anoints him to become the king, and David is. Ha, David has become in, in Jewish history the paradigmatic king. He's the best king ever. Uh, if any kings are ever com- are ever really good, they say he was a really good king, almost as good as David. But don't be silly, not as good as David. Uh, so David David holds a, uh, a really valuable place in, in the Jewish life. And David, more than anyone else, is responsible for kind of the first massive change in Israelite religion. Uh, David undertakes to Uh, consolidate worship and political power in Jerusalem. So David takes over the city. Uh, He calls it Jerusalem. And then he consolidates all of Israel's political power there. Instead of them being this loose affiliation of tribes, now they're one nation, they have one king. And then David begins the process of sort of shutting down temples that were for worshiping Yahweh, God, all over uh, Israel. He begins shutting them down and trying to consolidate that political power or that that religious authority in Jerusalem and so david's son solomon actually builds this magnificent temple and it becomes the only place that you can worship yahweh in the world and that was a, that was a major major shift because before that uh, families would have their own sort of shrines in their houses it looked much it looked much more like uh, a lot of the religions around them. Uh, a town would have its own kind of tent and its own shrine in there, and people would worship in there. Uh, and and Solomon starts shutting, David and Solomon kind of shut all of those down and consolidate everything into the temple in Jerusalem. And so uh, they understood that God's physical presence on earth lived in the temple in Jerusalem. And if you wanted to interact with God, you had to go to Jerusalem to this temple. Uh, you, could, you could pray, and you could do things like that outside of there, but that was where you had to go. Yes? Correct. No, this the temple, so that's a good question. question was, uh, this is not when we talk about synagogue, this is not what we're talking about. No. Um, and, in fact, we'll get to why they had synagogues when we get to the exile, but the synagogues are, the, the word is actually a Greek word that means a meeting place. So the, the synagogues are actually just for people to meet together and read scripture and pray together, and uh, very similar to what we do in this building. Uh, and the temple was not actually the temple building itself. Almost no one was allowed to go in there, except for the, the very not even all of the priests, only a few of the priests. And so the the temple itself was God's house. That was where God lived, and the only people allowed to go in there were the the holiest of the priests, who kind of took care of God. And the like, if if we were all living in ancient Israel, uh, ladies, sorry, but you wouldn't even be allowed like on the steps. Most of us men, unless we happen to be priests, would be allowed like in the courtyard, and then the few of us who would maybe be priests would be allowed to go into the inner parts of the courtyards and the buildings and things like that. But um, that's very different from a synagogue. So, okay, so is that clear so far? That that sort of process of consolidation of the of the religion until we get to a place in about a thousand BC when worship of Yahweh is only happening in Jerusalem's temple. Uh, it's always supposed to be happening in Jerusalem's temple. You see that it doesn't quite stick, and so you have prophets and people who are running around telling people, hey, knock that, knock it off And all those other places. God does not like that. Uh, So we see that people didn't always listen, but that was what they were supposed to do. So, good so far? Okay. Uh, So then, uh, the next really climactic event that happened in, in Israel's history was the exile. So this is about uh, almost 500 years later, it's in 586 BC, that the Babylonian Empire conquers the city of Jerusalem. So uh, in the interim time, there's been a civil war, and the kingdoms have divided, and there's there's been a lot of sort of political drama, but the, the temple has always been there. Jerusalem has always been there. No matter what else has been going on in the Jewish faith, uh, or in this kind of like pre-Jewish faith, you could always go to that temple and worship Yahweh. That was safe, and it was there, no matter what else was going on. Uh, now in 586 Babylon destroys the city of Jerusalem and destroys the temple and so for the first time in basically forever they don't have anywhere to go that they can worship Yahweh they don't have any building that they can be in they don't have they don't have any place they can offer sacrifices and this is a big problem particularly for all of the uh, religious elite people that got taken to Babylon because they want to remain faithful to God, they want to continue to worship, but now they're hundreds of miles from their temple, which doesn't even exist anymore anyway. And so this this causes uh, them to have to reevaluate how they worship God. How do we do our faith when there is no temple, when there is no place to go, and we couldn't even go there if we wanted to? And so what you start to see in the wake of the exile is the development of what is recognizably Judaism. Uh, so, Jew, the, uh, what what people had to start asking is how do we be Jew, how do we be worshiping God in Babylon? How do we worship God if we're in the Northern Kingdom in Israel? And how do we even if we are in Jerusalem? How do we worship God without a temple? So, this period was called the Diaspora, which is a Greek word that means the scattering of seed, because the, the Jewish people, God's people, were sort of thrown to the winds and they were scattered all over the known world, and they needed to figure out how they could be God's people. All over the world, not just in their promised land. Uh, so this Judaism, essentially, a really good way to think about it about it is that it was a more portable form of the the tribal well, uh, tribal is not a good word. the the Yahwism that kind of like pre judaic religion that was locked to a land and to a temple and to a place and Judaism was more portable. It had to be more portable. It had to be something that no matter where you went or no matter where you were taken, you could practice it. So this is when, this is the period during which most of what we call the Old Testament, what the Jewish people call the the Hebrew Bible, this is when most of that got written down. It had all existed as oral tradition or as like documents and different records and stuff. But they never really needed to write it all down somewhere before because it was just all kept in the temple and it was all safe and it was all fine. And then once that was all destroyed and all of their religious identity was threatened, they had to start writing these things down and putting them together in a way that was portable and understandable. And so this is where we start to get what we would recognize as a Bible. Uh, before this, it was all just sort of like oral traditions and collections of texts and things like that. So, uh, again, it's, it's hard to overstate how important the exile event was in the life, uh, in the development of both Judaism and Christianity. Any questions about that? You guys are awesome. All right, here we go. Uh, so let's then talk about Second Temple Judaism. As you might suspect, this is the Judaism that was happening after the temple was rebuilt. So after the exile, the Jewish people were finally allowed to return to Jerusalem, and they were actually eventually allowed to rebuild the temple, hence Second Temple. But it was never really the same after that, and, and the Jewish people sort of felt that deep down. Because essentially what had happened was Israel was transferred uh, it was always ruled by some other power. So the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians, and then that Cyrus, the, per- uh, the emperor of Persia, is the one who actually allowed them to go back and rebuild the temple. Uh, Persia got conquered by Alexander the Great, and then after Alexander the Great died, they split up his uh, kingdom into three kingdoms, and the Seleucid monarchy, uh, or dynasty, was kind of ruled over Egypt and Israel, and so Israel is ru- ruled over by all these Seleucid kings. So fast forward again to about 167 B.C., and this particular Seleucid king, whose name was Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Yeah, I know. Uh, you know, actually, his name's not super important, but uh, he desecrated the new temple. Okay, he actually, uh, the, the, we're going to get to kosher laws in a little bit, but the pig is considered unclean in Judaism, uh, and the, he slaughtered a pig and poured its blood all over the altar and things like that in the temple. And uh, he, he was apparently he was trying to make the Jews mad, and it worked spectacularly. Because this sparked the Hasmonean rebellion. And when we get to the Holy Days, this is what Hanukkah commemorates. Okay, so the Jews rose up in revolt uh, under the Maccabees. And they uh, kicked the Seleucid kings out of Israel. And uh, Israel, for about 100 years, was under self-rule. Uh, and so the, the Maccabean kings, the ones who kicked everyone out, they declared themselves both kings and priests. And they just sort of did everything in the temple. Uh, And so then in about 63 BC, Pompey, the Roman general, uh, took over Israel again. And then Israel has never, was never, ever, ever, ever again a state uh, until 1948. So um, now, by the time of Jesus... Uh, even in the Holy Land itself, Judaism had a lot of factions. And you can imagine this, right? If we've made this thing that used to be landlocked and locked to the temple, if we've made it portable, and we've kind of sent it out into the world, you can imagine that it wouldn't take very long for it to start developing different flavors wherever you went. And sure enough, that happened. And so by the time of Jesus, uh, by about the, the you know, 1 and like 30 AD, uh, there were lots of different factions and, and kinds of Judaism even within Israel, and you've heard of if you if you've any familiarity at all with the New Testament, you've heard of a lot of these. Um, oops, sorry, that was all. Hey, there were some names that you probably wanted. Uh, so, uh, so the first group that you've probably heard of is the Sadducees. Uh, this was a group that if you if you consider yourself a Bible believing conservative, you would be a Sadducee. Okay, they were the literalists. Uh, they were the they were tied to the temple. They they said, you know what? Give me that old time religion, uh, just like great 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 granddad used to practice. That's what I like. Don't change it. Don't bring any of that fangled stuff in here. Like I like it the way it is. That's who the Sadducees were. Very literal interpretation of the Torah. Um, very conservative. Very tied to the temple. Just again, just like you would imagine for someone who is into the old stuff. Okay. Um, the Pharisees were a new upstart group that formed after the Hasmoneans took over the temple because they did not think that, well, the, so when the Maccabees did their revolt and took over, the guys who were priests weren't actually Levites. And so the the Pharisees were saying, look, you can say that you're old-timey and traditional all you want, but you're not actually doing what the scriptures say you should be doing. And so they rejected Uh, what was going on in the temple as as really, truly what God was wanting to do, and they kind of took it on themselves. Uh, They were what we would call theologically progressive or theologically liberal. They believed in in oral interpretations of the Torah. Um, And and it might surprise you, but of all of the groups that we know of in Second Temple Judaism, the Pharisees were the ones that were the most like Jesus, which is why he fought with them all the time. Because you actually fight with the people that are most like you, not the people that are most dissimilar from you. You just sort of look at those people and go, you guys are weird. But the people that are almost like you but not quite are the ones you fight with all the time because they've almost, they've almost got it. And you, if you just show them how right you are, then they would get it and they would agree with you. Um, uh, the last two groups are, were, uh, particularly the Zealots, are not. we're not even sure that they're actually a group, but they were people who uh, were in favor of violent revolution. They liked what the Maccabees did and thought that they could probably do it again against Rome. Uh, both of these groups were not big fans of the temple. The Essenes are the other group. And uh, the Essenes, were they were so disgusted with what was going on. Again, it, all started, it was all kind of in the wake of the Maccabean Rebellion. That they actually moved out to the desert and lived in caves and just sort of like were waiting for God to come back and destroy everything. And so they wrote and studied uh, the Torah. They wrote all of their own texts and all of this stuff. They put them in jars and then left them in the desert and... And about 1949, a kid and his goat were walking around in these caves just doing what kids do with their pets and found a bunch of clay pots with a bunch of scrolls in them and thought they probably were important. And that's how we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. So the Essenes are the group that created the Dead Sea Scrolls, and those were massively important for uh, understanding the Old Testament and, and particularly the art of translating the Old Testament and how reliable our Old Testament texts are. But they were from a group of kind of crazy people that lived down the desert by themselves and wrote real weird stuff. Uh, so thanks to those guys. Um, so that was all second temple Judaism. And the thing that's interesting about all of that for our discussion is what it shows is that even in Jesus's day, uh, temple worship was on its way out. Um, Say what you want, but when you compare the when you compare the Judaism that was, or when you compare that kind of like ancient Yahwism that was centered around the temple with what was going on in Jesus's day, the temple just played a much smaller role in the everyday life of most religious people. It was still there; it was still important, but you could you could trace a trajectory, and it was a downward slope in the value and the importance of the temple. Yes, yep, there absolutely were, but. Um, so, uh, Joe asked, were there sacrifices going on at that time? There were sacrifices going on at that time, but you had several groups of people that were saying, like, look, man, you can kill whatever you want, but you're not a legitimate priest, so it doesn't actually do anything. So, we're actually, even though it looks like everything's fine, we're actually still in the same boat that we were in the exile when we didn't have a temple. Uh, they were usually appointed by Rome, so it was usually whoever was going to either cause the least amount of trouble or pay the most money. In the exile. So question was, when did they lose the Ark of the Covenant? That was last seen during the exile. So it's, it, uh, I, I've i actually never confirmed this, but it's I've always thought this. They probably had some sort of replacement Ark in the Second Temple, uh, but it, it certainly didn't have the Ten Commandments in it, the Jar of Man, any of the stuff that was in uh, David's Ark. So, um, yeah. The uh, question was, where does the Sanhedrin fit in with Second Temple Judaism? Uh, the Sanhedrin was basically, uh, you know, a, a horrible example wouldn't be sort of like our Congress. They were the people that, they were a political group that basically ruled Jerusalem. And so just like some of the people who are in Congress are, have been religious leaders, they've been pastors or maybe even like deacons or something like that, there were certainly some priests or even Levites who would be on the Sanhedrin. And so they, they had a, an association with the temple. Uh, they also had an association with Herod. And or whoever was ruling Jerusalem at the time. So good. Other questions, other thoughts, comments? This is kind of where I wanted to like spend the whole night here, but we gotta go. Um, Okay, so Second Temple Judaism came to an end with the Jewish Wars. So the Second Jewish War broke out in AD 66 uh again someone decided they would start an armed rebellion against Rome and enough people listened to them that they took it seriously and so uh Drew- judea rose up in revolt against Rome which was never ever a good idea um it the this this war culminated in AD 70 when Rome said all right you know what enough they destroyed herod's second temple and uh that was the end that was the end the end of second temple judaism if that wasn't enough, about a generation later in 132, the Bar Kokhba rebellion broke out. And so in AD 135, so 70 to 135, Rome said, okay, enough is enough. They leveled Jerusalem. They exiled every single Jewish person from the city proper. And then they rebuilt it and renamed it as a Roman city. And so from that, that, that point on, there were no Jews in Jerusalem. So, if, if, the, if the destruction of the temple didn't put a nail in the coffin, this certainly was it. That was in 135. This was the death blow to that land-based, temple-centric Yahwism. It had been on its way out since the exile, but this, this was the very end of it. From, from from this day forward, from 70, 135, right in that area forward, the only way that Judaism could survive is if it was portable. And so it was during this period that our Old Testament canon, what the Jews would consider their biblical canon, was finalized, what's in, what's not. Uh, and so it was with that that Judaism really became fully portable. And so the period after that is sort of a second diaspora where there were Jewish pe- Jewish communities all over the world, and they really thrived. Uh, they studied They studied the scriptures, uh, they, they learned together, and there was a, particularly a community in Babylon which was uh, really, really fruitful. And so this was the period, now if you can imagine, right, of those four kind of groups that were in Second Temple Judaism, there was really only one that was set up to survive uh, the destruction of the temple. Certainly it was not going to be the Sadducees, uh, it was not going to be the Zealots because they were probably the ones fighting. It was not the Essenes because they were just living out in a cave by themselves and they probably were actually excited, but then they didn't have anything to do. Uh, it was the Pharisees. The Pharisees who were already sort of distanced from the temple, who were already trying to study scripture and learn Torah, all of this. They were the ones that were set up to survive. And so they, their grandchildren really became the rabbis of what we would consider to be rabbinic Judaism. And so during this period of the second diaspora, you have, uh, you have a, a really a large emphasis on learning, on studying the the scriptures and, and all of that. And so from this point forward, this is when Judaism really developed a heavy scholarly bent, when, you, when it really became famous for its learning, its education, and all of that kind of stuff. We're going to come back to that in a little bit when we talk about their sacred texts. Uh, during what we would call the Middle Ages, this kind of scholarly Judaism was flourishing, but ironically, it was not in Europe. Uh, because, to our shame, Christians were heavily persecuting Jews. And so where they found refuge and welcome was in Islamic countries. Uh, Islamic countries welcomed them and actually any Christians who were being persecuted by their particular country that they were in, and so uh, this is where medieval Judaism flourished. This is where Jewish mysticism started up. If you've ever heard of Kabbalah, that is a form of Jewish mysticism, where they uh, kind of try to find secret messages in the scriptures and things like that, lots of, lots of prayer and kind of esoteric stuff. Uh, that all began here. Uh, this is all during the Middle Ages, so uh, 800s, of 12, 1300s-ish, all during that time. So while we were experiencing a dark age, uh, everyone else around us was, con- uh, us being Europe, I guess, uh, Western civilization was in the dark ages. Everyone else was actually having a grand old time learning and exploring and inventing zeros and things like that. And so that all sort of culminated. This this was, you can see, right, this was just a long period in Judaism of learning, of study, uh, and and, and what we could call kind of rabbinic Judaism, that all cul- culminated during the Renaissance, another period where Europe finally was kind of coming out of the Dark Ages, le- learning lots of new things, uh, lots of new knowledge. And uh, because there was so much change happening, particularly in Europe, uh, as a response to all of that change, the Jewish community began uh, began to split in ways that are really recognizable to people who are modern Jewish practitioners. Uh, one group decided that they, in, in, in the face of change, like many times, uh, they retreated into more of the traditionalism. And so this is where, if you've ever uh, seen Hasidic Judaism or the really traditional forms of Orthodox Judaism, this is where that began. It uh, began as a response to a lot of the changes that were coming about in the Enlightenment. Now, the other, the other fork of that change came from uh, engaging the change and engaging the secular culture that was beginning to emerge, uh, and that was what we could call a, liber- mo- a more liberal form of Judaism. And so, a lot of the more liberal Jews are some of the most famous scientists and scholars of the Enlightenment. They really engaged in universities, and a lot of the a lot of the persecution was kind of at an ebb at that point. Though, spoiler alert, it did not go away, and so. Um, really a lot of what came out of out of the renaissance uh period was was really a, a a time of a lot of learning and sort of a reestablishment of tradition in jewish culture and so through all of this the central question that jewish people were asking was how do we maintain our jewish identity in the midst of so much change not just change in a single culture, but again, Jew, Jewish people are all over the known world at this point. They can be found in every different culture all over the world. And so so the question is, with with so many different cultures that are always changing, how do Jewish people continue to be Jewish people? How do they continue to be that unique chosen people that show God's way to the world around them? And so here's where... If anything's hard tonight, it's going to be this. So before we go there, any questions about this period? Thoughts, comments, corrections? When did the uh, Middle Ages. Yeah. That, you're looking at the Crusades, you're looking at the Inquisitions, you're, all that kind of stuff. Mhm. So, Islam had already spread all over. Yeah, Islam Islam started in the 700s and so uh yeah, by 800 900 it was all over North Africa, all over the Middle East. Yeah, and actually the Christian faith and the Islamic faith in that time period got along fine as long as the Christians weren't crusading. Yeah. Uh if you if you want to have a nice sunny this view of Christian history just skip right over the Middle Ages because nothing that we did in that time was good so we were we we were very much the bullies of the globe uh, to our shame so yeah during during that particular period of time uh, the Islamic faith the Jewish faith and what Christians were in those countries the Muslim countries were getting along famously uh, typically, all that would happen. We'll talk a lot more about this next week when we talk about Islam. But typically, yeah, what the what what the what the Muslim countries would do would just sort of do like a a religion tax. So if you're not Muslim, just pay a little tax and you can do whatever you want. So and people who were getting killed everywhere else were like, deal. Sign us up for that tax. So other thoughts, questions? Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah, the comment was that uh, even during that time was when Columbus was sailing out and and trying to, again, trying to find some places for for the Jewish people to be. You can really start to get a sense by the time you get to this point in history that the Jewish people are, are really. They've always been aching for their homeland again, but they're real. I mean, by this point, they're just there's a there's a deep longing for some place that they that is theirs, you know, because they because of well, here let's we're jumping ahead. Any other thoughts, comments? You guys are doing great. Any other thoughts, comments, questions? All right. So, this is the thing I said was going to be tricky. If anything's tricky, now, let me just say this, and then we'll qualify and ask questions and clarify. Uh, almost. Yeah, we're, we're, we're sort of set up to talk about modern Judaism. Judaism, because, again, the question that they were always trying to answer was, how do we maintain our identity? How do we maintain our identity as, a, as a, a chosen people in the midst of all of these other cultures? Because what they, I mean, what they could have done was just assimilate, right? Just just be like everyone else, and eventually whatever was ethnically unique or culturally or unique about it, we would just sort of, like, be bred out. Right, Just, And so the Jewish people understood that that was a real possibility, and they wanted to not do that. They wanted to maintain their identity and their culture. And so the question was, with so many different cultures and with everything changing all of the time, it was that, back to that wrestling. How do we do this? How do we live out God's way? And so because of that question, the Jewish faith is much more a faith, it's actually much less a faith than it is a practice. Uh, Judaism is not so much a religion of belief, Uh, again, at least not primarily, and I have to overqualify this, but I think it'll it'll make sense. Uh, What really matters in Judaism is your action, your behavior, what you do, the things that you engage in. Uh, And so Jewish communities all over the world, though they may differ greatly in a lot, even what language they speak, uh, even in a lot of cases, some of their beliefs, they all do a lot of the same things, and it's the practices... That often set them apart from everyone else. Now, this is a huge difference from Christianity, particularly from evangelical Christianity, which is what Nazarenes are. Uh, we, as Christians, are what is called Orthodox, okay? Orthodoxy means right thinking. And Orthodoxy is mainly concerned with you thinking, believing, the right things. Evangelicals particularly, we put a huge emphasis on a personal experience of God and an assent to a particular set of truths, particular set of beliefs. In Judaism, the emphasis is reversed. Jews are much more about orthopraxy, right action, right practice. Okay? Now, of course, neither of these is exclusive, and of course, both of them have pitfalls, right? We would all probably agree... That behaviors without beliefs are empty, and, and and certainly that they're lacking spiritual significance and power, right? If you just do something, but you don't really have a reason for it; you just kind of do it. Um, but on our end, right, we also all know people who say they believe things, but those beliefs don't inform their actions. And so this is where we would all do really really well to to listen to the book of James, which is a very Jewish book of the New Testament, right? Mm-hmm. James says we can't only have belief or only have Behavior, we they were never meant to be separated. That's a that's a distinction that we've sort of made for ourselves. That you can act, do certain things without believing in them, or believe things without acting on them. So, but it's important as you move forward and thinking about trying to understand, uh, a, particularly to build re- relationships with someone who is a a modern Jewish person, that they're probably mainly going to be concerned about behaviors, practices, actions. We'll get to what a lot of those are, and talking about beliefs or how those beliefs inform those behaviors is going to be a less interesting question to them than it is to you. And that's weird, but that's because, of course, we're on our side of the fence. And if we were on their side of the fence, they'd probably think we were weird. So uh, just understand that that's a difference and understand that that's going to shape a lot of your conversation. And if you hit that difficulty early on, don't be surprised by it. Just embrace it and try to learn from each other, right? Try to seek truth together. Any questions about that distinction? Yeah. I asked my Jewish friend once. I said, How come it is that the Jews are well to do, very successful, the majority of the lives? Why is that? She said, Because we're raised from the time we're children, that our lives should be to God's glory. So everything they do and say is supposed to be to God's glory. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great, that's a. Mm hmm. Well, you know, and it's, it's interesting that a lot of these practices are, are what usually a lot of them leads to the persecution of Jewish people, particularly during the Middle Ages. Uh, one, one of the famous examples is when the bubonic plague swept through Europe. It was transmitted by the fleas on rats. Well, because the Jewish people placed such a high value on cleanliness, they didn't have nearly as many rats as all of us Gentiles. And so guess who didn't get the plague? Jewish communities. And so, in superstitious medieval Europe, we all looked around, and you know, we already didn't like the Jews much anyway. And then, when we were all dying and they're not, we said, "Well, they must be causing it." And so that was, you know, just extra excuse to persecute the Jewish people. When in fact, it was it was their particular set of practices that were protecting and preserving them from the bubonic plague. So, uh, so it's it's often it's often these practices because it's not. I mean, you can. You can walk down a street and you can have no idea what someone believes, right? I mean, that's that's kind of the point of this class. Is we have to learn what other people believe. You don't have to learn how everyone else behaves. You just watch it. And so so practices easily mark out the Jewish people. And, and again, that's the point of them, but it also makes them an easy target for persecution. And so uh, it, we cannot we cannot talk about Judaism, of course, without talking about where that persecution led. As Jewish culture continued to thrive in Europe over those several hundred years, um, those practices continually made them enemies in the eyes of the larger Christian culture. And of course, in World War II, this culminated when the Nazis used uh, the excuse of the Jewish people to execute their final solution to what they called the Jewish problem. And so by the end of World War II, the Nazis had systematically slaughtered over 12 million people Fully half of them were Jewish, and about one and a half million of them were children. The Holocaust almost exterminated Jewish culture in Europe. Uh, in fact, what Jewish culture is there today is not really original to uh, to Europe. It's not people that have just kind of bounced back. It's, it's other Jewish people who have moved into Europe to sort of reclaim, uh, reclaim that. The Holocaust left, as, as much as it has scarred Western civilization, as much as it has scarred our conscience, it has it even more deeply harmed uh, the Jewish consciousness worldwide. Um, that, it's something that Jewish theologians are still wrestling with, are still uh, trying to figure out if they're, if they're really God's chosen people, how, how did this happen, what, what could it have been about, and, um, and that's, that's a, a topic that we should approach with a lot of humility and a lot of trepidation. Um, another thing, another, something else that happened as a result of the Holocaust was that was sort of the final push that the United Nations needed to establish a Jewish state. And so, uh, in 1948, uh, the United Nations took a bunch of land away from Arab Palestinians, declared a Jewish state, and that's been a near constant state of war ever since then. And if we were doing a politics class, we would talk all about that, but we're not talking about the religion of Judaism. So, uh, we're going to talk about modern Judaism, branches of Judaism today. Any comments, thoughts, questions before we head into that? Okay. So, coming out of Renaissance Judaism, we get what we could talk about as modern Judaism, and there are really, there there are four branches, but I think the fourth one is a a really new one, and I I don't think it's one that we're really going to run into, so we're going to talk about the main three that you will recognize. First of all is Orthodox Judaism. If you've ever seen a Hasidic Jew, which you could recognize by the, the black dress and the, the curls, and they usually use a lot of, like, the prayer shawls and things like that, um, this is Orthodox Judaism. So they are the most conservative kind of Judaism that you can find today. Um, Orthodox Jews, when you go into an uh, Orthodox Jewish synagogue, the men will sit on one in one place, the women will sit in the other. Sometimes it's side by side, sometimes it's actually, like, a balcony. Um the services will be all in Hebrew. They will be only led by male rabbis, uh, and then the men use uh, the prayer shawls and the uh, the little uh, the phylacteries that they keep on their hands. We'll talk about those in a little bit. And then they always, always, always wear some sort of a hat or a yarmulke. Uh, and the idea behind that is that it always reminds them that they are under God; that God is above all things, in, including them. So it's it's a symbol for them of, uh, and they they're, they wear them all the time. Uh, women usually keep their hair covered. in fact, uh, it's sort of become fashionable for women to wear wigs so that no one outside of their home ever sees their hair. Uh, and then these are the these are the Jewish people who will most strictly observe kosher dietary code and Sabbath laws and things like that so they'll uh, you know not uh, I've, I've uh, heard of some Jewish people who will even like tape the little light on their refrigerator so that when they open the door to their fridge on the Sabbath the light doesn't come on. Uh, because you're not supposed to you're not supposed to make fire on the Sabbath and they consider turning a light on you know too close to too close to want to risk it. so uh, they don't turn on lights and that includes the fridge. Uh, so that is Orthodox Judaism. Uh, again, just understand that's the, the very conservative kind of Judaism. Uh, the middle ground is what's is actually called conservative Judaism, but it's, it's actually in between Orthodox and, and uh, reformed Judaism. Uh, and this one, there's really not a lot you can say comprehensively about it. Other than that, they are open to change. They just do it very slowly and method- uh, methodically. Not methodologically. Eh, probably that too. Um, mostly they still worship in Hebrew. Though, again, it kind of depends on the conservative congregation you find. And this is a very popular form of Judaism in the United States. So uh, some of them have female rabbis. Some of them don't. Some of them worship in Hebrew. Some of them don't. Uh, again, this is just sort of like the middle hodgepodge of everything that just gets thrown in together. The Orthodox are the ones that say, you know, we're never going to change. We're going to always do the, what we do. Conservatives are like, uh, we're open. Tell us a little bit about it. We'll think and pray about it. And then the last one is Reform Judaism. So Reform Judaism uh, does gender equality. So they have female rabbis. They do bat mitzvahs in addition to bar mitzvahs. Uh, bat mitzvah is the girl version of it. Uh, worship is in the vernacular, whatever language their synagogue is in is where they'll do it. And, and Reform Judaism is an intentional modernization of Judaism. They are intentionally trying to say, how can we be Jewish in the modern world? Uh, as the world changes, we want to be on the cutting edge of that change. We want to be engaged in the culture. Um, I put an orange there because I have a Passover Haggadah, which we'll talk about a little bit if you don't know what that is, but it's sort of like a guide to the Passover to the Seder meal. And it's a reform Haggadah, and one of the things that they've added to the Seder plate is an orange. The orange is something that's supposed to represent gay and lesbian Jewish people. And so, obviously, that is not something that is in the Orthodox Haggadahs, probably not in most of the conservative Haggadahs, but it is something that the reform uh, Jewish community has embraced at, to a large degree. So, um, yeah. Are you saying Haggadahs like the ice cream? No, not Haggadahs. Uh, Haggadah. It's a, it's a Jewish word. Uh, think of it, it's sort of like a, like a script. For the Seder meal, so we'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, now, in addition, these are sort of the uh, the the difference in belief and practice in Judaism. Judaism is also divided along ethnic lines, and so different Jewish communities that have been in one particular ethnic region for a long period of time also have sort of developed their own idiosyncrasies. So you know like Amer- American Judaism or uh, Russian Judaism or Ethiopian Judaism. So there there is a lot of that as well, um, and. Again, there's, their practices tend to look more like whatever culture they're in or the language that they use. Uh, you've probably heard Yiddish words before, and that is because in Europe, particularly in Eastern Europe, Yiddish was a sort of a amalgam of several different languages that the Jewish communities there used. And uh, even though they, those cultures were largely wiped out by the Holocaust, uh, a lot of Yiddish culture has still sort of uh, existed in other forms. and you know a lot of our a lot of our, if you know a jewish word that you saw in a movie one time it's probably a yiddish word okay so any questions about the different branches uh, so that's messianic judaism uh, they are not uh, they i i would consider them more a denomination of christianity than a branch of judaism correct right so, uh, the, and they're, you know, that's, they're an interesting sort of hybrid because a lot of them are ethnically Jewish, but they believe Christian doctrine and, and, and things. So they'll do a lot of Jewish practice, but then they have a lot of Christian belief. And they're, they're an interesting sort of gray area uh, for both Jews and Christians. Uh, so we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit when we get to building bridges. Uh, so again, what, what it's important to see with all of this is these are not they're not really three categories. It's more like a spectrum. Uh, it's a spectrum of conservative to liberal. Just like you can do you can do this with Christian denominations, um, you can do it with just about anything, and you're going to find people all along the spectrum. And so, particularly when you're building relationships with someone who is a Jewish person, you're going to have to find out through conversation, through asking questions, kind of where they fall on the spectrum. So. All right, now, I know I said the, the Jewish people are not really a, a faith that does a lot of belief, but there are a few beliefs, and we should talk about what they are. Um, first of all, the Jews believe that God is one. Now, you've probably noticed on the slides I've been writing God without the O in it. Uh, that is because in Jewish history, the, the fourth commandment is, or third commandment, one of the commandments, is uh, don't take God's name in vain. And what that means is don't use God's name carelessly. Now, uh, it became tradition in Judaism that the best way not to use God's name carelessly, God's name is Yahweh, the best way not to use the name Yahweh carelessly is just never to use it. And so uh, in Hebrew, when when the Jews are reading a, a text and they come across God's name, Yahweh, they substitute the word Adonai instead of Yahweh, and Adonai means Lord. And so, if you ever, if you're ever reading your Christian uh, Old Testament, and you see the word "Lord" written in all capital letters, that is actually the divine name. That's God's name, Yahweh. And we've sort of followed Jewish tradition in that and just wrote "Lord," but we just wrote it in all capital letters so that you would know that you're actually reading God's name. Uh, now, what what's happened in English is that the, a lot of a lot of Jewish scholars and practitioners have carried this over, and, and you will see them write "God" like this, G underscore D, and it's just a way for them to be mindful of how they're interacting with God and particularly with God's name, so. Um, Second is that the the Jewish people all give authority to what they call the law and the prophets, okay? So uh, what I really want to do here is talk a little bit about the scriptures that the Jewish people use. Now, I said earlier that the way we understand the word law is probably not the best it's not the most helpful way for us to interact with Jewish people. Uh, We are children of Martin Luther, whether we like it or not. And Martin Luther is the one who basically said that the Old Testament law was like this burden that hangs around our neck and drags us down and convinces us of how awful we are. And all it's really good for is making us see how much we really need Jesus. Okay, And so we read that back onto Paul. We read that back onto Jesus. Jewish people in general, and so we got this picture of Judaism that it's this really strict legalistic religion where they're not allowed to have any fun, and they just sort of walk around all the time being miserable. But that's better than being smited, so they just kind of keep doing what God told them to do. And they have all these all these laws that is have in the Bible, and it's just it is awful. Okay, now what's weird about that is if you ever actually talk to a Jewish person, or even actually ever read the Old Testament, you would see that that is not at all how the Jewish people think of the law. They consider the law to be a gift and a privilege. Uh, Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. Anyone who's ever tried to read through the whole Bible has always dreaded coming to Psalm 119 because it's so long. But Psalm 119 is actually a giant love poem to the law. To the Torah. It's just, he goes on and on and on and on about how great it is. And what a privilege, what a gift it is from God that God would single out a particular people and then he would give them explicit instructions on what it what the way that they were created to be was. It's like, it's the, the Jewish people look at it as they got insider information. Okay? Everyone else just sort of has to figure it out. But God actually told them. And so it's actually, it's a, it's a deep privilege for them to be able to bear the law. It's a deep privilege for them to follow the commandments. It's, it's, it's actually how they, they look at it as their opportunity to show their love and their devotion for God. And that's not how I was raised to look at the Old Testament at all. Um, but that that's how Jesus would have looked at it. That's how Paul would have looked at it. And obviously, there's some stuff we have to do with that as Christians, but we'll get there. But it's but you should understand when you're talking to the to Jewish people and you talk about the Torah or the law, they're not, they don't see it as a burden. They don't see it as something that they're trapped by. They see it as a really, really, really great thing. And kind of too bad you don't get to keep it too. So the Jewish scriptures are called the Tanakh. That is actually an acronym, T-N-K, it's sort of K, it's three Hebrew letters. Uh, And it looks a lot, it's actually all of what we would call the Old Testament, but it's in a different order. So the first section of books is called the Torah, which is what we've been talking about, the law, the instruction, the way, and that's what, same as ours, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, okay. This is, the, this is the heart of the Jewish scriptures. This is the most important part. It would be equivalent to how we would look at the Gospels. The next section, and you don't have to write all of the books down if it's just thought you'd be interested to see what are considered what in the Jewish scriptures. The next section is the, the Nevi'im or the prophets. Okay, and these books are Joshua, Judges, the Sam, Samuel, and Kings, they lump them into one. Instead of we have First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then what they call the Book of the Twelve, which we divide into twelve books and call it the Minor Prophets. Okay, but they just put them all in one book and call it the Book of the Twelve because most of them are pretty short books. So this is the Prophets. So uh, even Jesus would say. Uh, talk about the law and the prophets, right? When you hear someone talk about the law and the prophets, this is what they're talking about. And these were, uh, the Torah was obviously the oldest section of scripture. The prophets was the next oldest sort of lump of stuff that was considered authoritative. Okay, and, and we know for sure that by Jesus' time, at least, uh, if not earlier, uh, the, the law and the prophets were both considered authoritative. There, you notice they're still missing a bunch of stuff. That's all in a section called the writings or ketuvim. Uh, and this is all the wisdom literature, like Psalm, Proverbs, Job. Uh, one book called the Scrolls, which is Song of Solomon, Ruth, Esther, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, and then some of the other prophetic books, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah are put together in one book, and then the book of Chronicles. And so these are all in the third section of Scripture, and, and, and today Jews consider all of these authoritative. So that that all together is the Tanakh, and this is the Jewish Bible. If you are talking to a Jewish person, please do not call it the Old Testament. At least, if you don't want to offend them. Uh, if you're actually trying to build a respectful relationship, call it the Bible. Call it the Hebrew Bible. That's fine. You can call it that. When they combine the books, around, mm-hmm. compared to what we have, is it are those two books, one to the other, or do they the actually do no, uh, in fact, uh, so Ezra and Nehemiah is a great example. Those are, that those are just part one and part two of a story, so they just stick them together, and it's just long, longer. Kind of like First and Second Kings. It's there's no good reason to break them up except for length, and so um, yeah. You know, a lot of these, I think, I think my guess would be, I haven't confirmed this, so don't hold me to this, but my guess would be that the length of a lot of these would be what fit on a scroll. And so it might have taken two scrolls to have kings. You know, it might have had two scrolls of kings or something like that. Ezra and Nehemiah might fit on one scroll, something like that. Um, again, when printing wasn't cheap and you had to copy everything by hand, you had to, you know, the length of stuff was really important. So. Oh, identical. Yeah. Yeah. Identical. I actually have a. If anyone wants to look at it? I brought my Jewish study Bible with me, and so it's if you were a Jewish person, just like you like having a Christian study Bible, they have a Jewish study Bible, and it's books all in their order and all of that. So happy to look at it afterwards. But yeah, it's it's identical. So now, where things get interesting is when we get out of the Tanakh into the Talmud. So the Talmud. Remember, I was talking about that uh, community of Jewish scholars in Babylon. Uh, well, they they created this thing called the Talmud and uh it's become also authoritative for jewish people so the talmud was developed by rabbis over hundreds of years and and this is one of the best examples that we could see of what it means to wrestle with jewish identity uh so the most famous talmud is the babylonian talmud and uh this is this is a page from that book and so what you can see here is that here in here in the middle of the text uh, or of the page is the actual text of scripture so this, this here in the middle of the page, and then over here, this is all Hebrew scripture. But then you have all of this other stuff printed around it. These are the uh, teachings of rabbis, uh, from over the course of hundreds of years. And, uh, in the margins, they're actually arguing with each other over interpretations. So, you know, one rabbi says this, but another rabbi says that. And this guy over here says this. And, and so the Jewish people studied this. And by studying the Talmud, it was a way to sort of invite Whatever worshiping community was using that document into that centuries-long wrestling with what these texts mean and what what God's trying to tell us through all of that, um, and all of this is held uh, by most Jewish people as equal in authority to uh, the to what we would call the Bible. So, the Talmud. You know, I'm not sure. Uh, it I I actually don't know that at all. It is entirely possible that are still being written today? Or that certain influential rabbis are having their stuff? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. So uh, not not unlike what we would have in a study Bible, right? We'd have the text at the top and the study notes at the bottom. The difference is uh, you don't get arguments in the study notes, right? Uh, you have, oh, no, this is what it means. Uh, and, and the Jewish people understand that uh, it's not usually that simple, especially when you're dealing with, again, all different cultures all across time, and so you you actually sort of get to sit in on the conversation that's been going on for hundreds of years about what these texts mean and what God's trying to say in them, and you're picking sides and, you know, stuff like that, so um, pretty cool. It, it'd be, I guess it'd be sort of like, you know, getting C.S. Lewis and the Church Fathers and... Augustine and Anselm and you know, throwing them all in, in the same text and getting to read what they said about this text and you know, yeah, absolutely, yeah. No, way after. after. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, people called Jesus Rabbi, right? There were rabbis around. There were a few influential rabbis in Jesus's time, um, but. We're talking about probably another four to six hundred years before. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Correct. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So you get you have you have oral teachings of rabbis that are passed down by schools of thought that eventually also get written down in the Talmud. So, yes. Okay, so when you're talking to a Jewish person about scripture, you're going to need to understand about the Tanakh, what we would call the Old Testament, what they would call the Bible, Hebrew Bible, and you're also going to need to understand about the Talmud. Okay, those—it's the uh, multiple, it's volumes, the library. I mean, it's yeah, it's enormous. And again, there's more than one. Though the Babylonian one's the most famous one and the most influential one. So, yeah, I've actually—I was using one in a research paper one time, and it was like. It was the it was a Talmud for Exodus like twenty one five through twenty three ten or something like that. It's just like oh my gosh, I can't imagine having all of these, you know. But it was it was really neat. So I used a translation. Uh, this particular one I don't know if you can make it out from back there is in Hebrew. Uh, so. Some people have lovingly translated them for people like us who don't want to have to try to deal with the original Hebrew. Good. Um, Okay, we're going to have to step up our pace a little bit. Uh, Another belief uh, that the Jewish people mostly share is a belief in a coming Messiah and a resurrection of the good. Now, like with just about everything else, depending on where you are in the spectrum of conservative to liberal depends on how literally you interpret this. Uh, again, your more conservative people are going to interpret this literally. They believe a messiah, a messiah is coming, it was not Jesus, and he's going to come one day, establish God's earthly kingdom, and uh, there will be a final resurrection of all of the good, all of the righteous. Okay. Uh, more liberal people, and you, you actually, again, you see the same kind of trend in Christianity, say uh, that's it's, it's all metaphorical language, and it, all it really means is that in the end good's going to win. But we're not actually looking for some kind of a Messiah to come. We're not actually expecting resurrection, uh, and and you're going to have everything, everything in between. So. Yes. Uh. Yeah. So, uh, Jesus actually famously used this uh, because again, now, um, Sadducees were literalists. They only accepted the Torah as authoritative. So just those first five books. And the Torah does not talk about resurrection of the dead. There's not really any room in Genesis through Deuteronomy for that kind of theology. So the Sadducees did not believe in resurrection. Uh, the Pharisees, those theological progressives who welcomed things like the prophets and maybe even some of the writings, they did believe in a final resurrection of the dead. Jesus did too. And so, uh, yeah, there was a point when uh, Jesus and the Pharisees are arguing like they did like all the time. And the Sadducees decide to come in and trick Jesus with a question about resurrection. And Jesus kind of throws it back in their face and actually argues resurrection from a text in the Torah and scares them bad enough they don't ask him any more questions. So, so yeah. Good. Any other questions? Last belief, then, is uh, the last Jewish belief is that humanity represents God. And this time, if you've been coming on Sundays, you've been hearing about this from Genesis, right? That we bear the image of God. Humanity bears the image of God. And that it's actually the human, the human calling to be the image of God in the world. We are to show the world God. And that particularly the Jewish people, out of all of humanity, have been chosen to bear God's image to everyone else. Uh oh, that has a lot. there's a lot of complex answers. Part of it was the culture of their day, but even in, even in Exodus, when they receive the law on Sinai, uh, God says, "If you will be my people, I will be your God, and I will make you a kingdom of priests." And the the what a priest did, particularly in that culture, was mediate between God and humanity. And so, God's statement to them was. My plan for you is that you will be an entire people of priests. All of you will have the responsibility to mediate between everyone else in the world and, and me. And so there was this, sent now, oh, I don't know if we have time to get all the way into that. Uh, there, there were a lot of other things that were going into that. Um, and there was always a vision, particularly you see this in the prophets, that there would be a day when all nations would come to God through the Jewish witness. So, yeah, that's a complicated question. Uh, okay, let's get into Jewish practices, and I'm I'm gonna step up the pace quite a lot. So how about this? Let's. If you have more questions, we'll just wait till the very end, and I'm gonna get through this as quickly and clearly as possible, because uh, I want to make sure we get all the way through this, and then we can do questions. So if you have a good question, write it down. Jewish practices. These are the things. So Jewish belief, again, those are sort of there's not a lot of them, and then they're sort of uh, negotiable depending on your communities. These are things that all Jews do uh, all over the world. These are the practices that define them as a community. So the first is prayer, uh, daily prayer, and and that is, uh, this is the Shema. It's the prayer that Jewish people say every day. Shema is from the first word. It's a Hebrew word that means hear or listen. So this is hear, O Israel, Adonai is our true God, Adonai is one. And the Jewish people pray this every day. Now I've put a few pictures up there. One, uh, That first one is the phylacteries, that's these. Uh, these more conservative Jewish people, Jewish men, will tie these around their wrist or around their forehead, and they're, they are filled with little scrolls that have pieces of the Torah written on them, because uh, there's a command to bind the Torah around your head and your forearm, and uh, it was sort of a way to be mindful of the Torah, and these, these particular people take it literally and actually bind the Torah to their head and the forearm. Uh, this down here is a prayer shawl. Orthodox Jewish men will use this when they pray. Uh, it's actually pretty offensive for non-Jewish people to use this, so if you ever go to a synagogue or something like that, don't. Don't bring yours if you happen to have one or something like that. Uh, and then this is a yarmulke. Again, we talked about that, how a lot of, again, more conservative people will keep that on their heads to remind them that they are under always, always, always under God, no matter what, you're under God. God is first, you're under God. So daily prayer is a way that the Jewish people order their day. It's a way of following the way of God in their daily lives. Uh, next, Sabbath. Sabbath is how the Jewish people order their week. Right? So daily prayer is how they order their day. Sabbath is how they uh, order their week. Sabbath is Saturday, not Sunday. Uh, this, and originally, the Sabbath was conceived as an act of mercy. We're going to be talking about this in a couple of weeks on Sunday. So uh, even animals and slaves were not permitted to work on the Sabbath. It was a day of rest for everybody. Uh, and even today, Sabbath is still meant to be a day of celebration. Uh, and so as with all Jewish times, Sabbath begins at sundown on friday and goes till sundown on saturday uh if you have been reading genesis with this you know that in genesis 1 it says there's evening and there's morning the first day there's evening and then there's morning the second day uh jewish time calculates days that begin at sundown and go till the next sundown uh we have a much more logical system where we pick an arbitrary time in the middle of darkness and go to another arbitrary time in the middle of darkness um uh, the Sabbath is to consist of study and worship and shared meals. So it really it really is meant to be something that is good and that is fun. Uh, I think I always grew up thinking of it as a time where you just had to like sit in the dark and not do anything. Uh, but it's not. That's not how Jewish people practice it. Uh, it's really meant to be a time of feasting and celebration and just resting, resting from from your day and from your work. And so and again, this was this was to mark every week, every week was to have this time of rest and pause in it. Uh, the Romans called the Jews lazy because they only worked six days a week and everyone else worked seven days a week. Uh, then when Christians started worshiping on Sunday because that was the day that Jesus rose from the dead and we called that the Lord's Day, uh, we said, you know what, we like that Sabbath thing, we're going to do that and we're going to do Sundays and that's how the weekend came about. So aren't you glad for that? Um <laughs> Uh, the other Jewish practice, so we talked about how they order their day with prayer. They order their week with Sabbath. They order their year with festivals and holy days. And so I listed them all there for you. Um, now just like their days begin at dark and move into light, the Jewish year begins with death and moves into life. So it starts after the harvest and what we would consider fall. And then it moves, it moves through what, you know, winter into spring and summer. The Jewish calendar is lunar. Uh, so the dates shift compared to our Roman, much less biblical, solar calendar. And the Jewish festivals are a mixture of both agricultural festivals, because they were mainly an agrarian society for lots and lots and lots of years, and then they're also religious festivals. So, first one is Rosh Hashanah. This is the Jewish New Year. It happens in the fall, usually September. It's preceded, so you got to think end of the year, it's preceded by a month of blowing the ram's horn, the shofar, every day, to remind you, you don't have much time left. Get your get your stuff together. Get all your debts paid off. Get everything handled. Get all your end-of-year business handled so that you can start the new year fresh. Uh, ten days after Rosh Hashanah is the most sacred day of the Jewish year. It's called Yom Kippur. That means Day of Atonement. Uh, in the Old Testament time, this was when they made corporate sacrifices for the sins of the nation and for the sins of the world. But even without the temple, it is a day of fasting and repentance uh, observant jews spend this day mostly in silence and fasting and this is the one day that even most of the most secular jews will observe it's that important is that sacred after yom kippur is sukkot which is the fe- feast of booths or the feast of tabernacles This was a harvest festival. It also commemorates when they wandered in the wilderness. So you're supposed to now the idea when they were an agrarian society was when you were harvesting, you couldn't just like you didn't just want to like leave all your harvested grain in a big pile for anyone to come take. So you actually built like a little tent and you slept out in the uh, in the fields. Uh, That sort of turned into a big festival where they were just like have a big party because everyone's out camping and you know when you camp you have fun. So uh, today uh, you actually can still build a booth. And you can still kind of go camping and stuff. And the, ce- the celebrations around this festival are a lot like our Thanksgiving. It's, it's, it's all about harvest and bounty and God's provision. All that kind of stuff. Okay, Hanukkah is next. Again, right around Christmas time. Uh, Hanukkah commemorates the Maccabean War from 167. So, uh, Jewish people light candles on a menorah to commemorate God's provision because when they were rededicating the temple, they were only supposed to have enough oil to last them one day, and it lasted eight days, miraculously. It lasted as long as they needed for the temple to be rededicated after Antiochus IV Epiphanes desecrated with the pig. So, uh, this is a day where uh, for eight days they exchange gifts and they light a menorah and all of that. Uh, Purim is probably the coolest one. It's sort of like a combination of Halloween and Mardi Gras and Judaism. Uh... Purim commemorates Esther rescuing the Jewish people from Haman and from the Persian Empire. And so they dress up, they do parades, like they do all this crazy stuff, and then it culminates with this reading of the Book of Esther. But if any of you have ever been to a melodrama, it's sort of like that. Like whenever Esther or Mordecai comes out of everyone's like, Yay! And anytime Haman comes out of it's like boo hiss, you know, and it's it's just it's just like this big carnival kind of atmosphere, and it's just, it's just a lot of fun. Um after Purim is Passover. Uh, Again, this is one that probably a lot of us have at least heard of before or a little bit familiar with. Passover retells the Exodus story, the the story of God delivering them from slavery in Egypt. The most famous part of the Passover is the Seder meal, in which every little piece of the Seder meal represents a different part of the Passover story. Okay, there's a couple that I didn't, uh, uh, there's a couple that aren't here, but that I I wrote on your page. Uh, Yom uh, HaShoah is a new holiday that commemorates the Holocaust. And because it is still so new, a lot of the rituals involved with it are still kind of being worked out. Like, there's not a lot of consensus. But um, they, they are, it's a day of remembrance and of committing never never again. Uh, and then there is Shavuot. This is better known to us as Pentecost. And uh, it is another harvest festival that became a celebration of Moses receiving the Torah on Mount Sinai. So Pentecost is a celebration in uh, in Judaism, of Moses receiving the Torah. And then the final holy day between uh, Shavuot and Rosh Hashanah is Tisha B'Av, which remembers the destruction of the two temples. And interestingly enough, this is a holiday that has uh, waned in popularity since 1948, when Israel received uh, became its own state again. Uh, this, is, this just doesn't get celebrated as much anymore. So what's interesting, what's fascinating to me about this calendar is that Jewish people are constantly reaffirming their unique identity all year long, right? There's there's week-long festivals and periods of fasting and feasting and all of that kind of stuff. And your entire year is ordered around your unique identity and unique story as a people. So, um, okay, we got to keep going. Come back. Uh, a few other ordering practices we just have to mention. Uh, eating kosher. Uh, dietary. This is again a, a way that Jewish people are marked out. There's all kinds of particular rules, like you don't eat meat and dairy, you don't eat pork, you don't eat shellfish, that kind of stuff. Um, that comes straight out of the Old Testament. Um, so, and it's something a lot of Jews still keep. Uh, circumcision. When a child is a boy is eight days old, his, uh, he is circumcised, and uh, this is again still practiced by most Jews. It's a, um, a particularly uh, for most most of human history, until we started doing it as a good medical idea, it was definitely a mark, uh, unique mark of Jews. Uh, then the bar, the bat mitzvah, is uh, the, it's son or daughter of the commandment. It happens when you're 13, and it's the Jewish coming of age ceremony. So uh, Orthodox Jews and a lot of conservative Jews do not do a bat mitzvah, the daughter of the covenant. They only do a bar mitzvah for boys. Reform will do a bar and bat. And then last is so the ceremonial cleansing. So this one is, uh, there's a ritual pool called a mikvah, and like women who have uh, been menstruating after they're done, there's like rules for that kind of stuff. And There's just different times that uh, Jewish people will do a ritual bath, and it's not like taking a shower. It's like it's a ritual bath. So. Okay. And again, what's, what's interesting about all of these practices is these are ways that Jewish people all over the world, no matter what culture they're in, no matter what language they speak, they all keep these kinds of practices, and it marks them out. It makes them different. Now, in the four minutes we have left, holy cow, Uh, Let's talk about how we can build bridges to Judaism. First of all, we share a a common sacred history, obviously. Uh, Their sacred text is a part of our sacred text. We need to be careful here because it is really easy to offend. And maybe that would be different if we hadn't spent so many years persecuting and killing Jews, but we did. And so we sort of lost the right to not have to be careful with how we engage this stuff. And so... Uh, when, particularly when you're when you're engaging with Jewish people about the Old Testament or about Jewish and Christian history, just tread lightly. Okay. Uh, if you think something might be offensive, wait till you're a little bit better friends. Uh, err on the side of caution, not on the side of offense. Something else that we agree on is that humans bear the image of a personal God. We agree about the nature of God. We agree about the character of God, and we agree that humans bear that God's image. Uh, That is not the case for a lot of the other religions that we're going to be studying. And so that's a place where we can come together and we can celebrate and we can agree. Another thing that we agree on is that humans are fallen and need forgiveness. Uh, This is something that Jewish people will affirm. This is something that Christians affirm. Um, Again, that's that's pretty different from the kind of karmic worldviews that we've been looking at before. Um, It's certainly different from some of the ones that we'll be looking at later. But we all read Genesis 3 in a fairly similar way. That there was a time that humans were good and were perfect and we fell from that. And we need forgiveness. Now we differ on the nature of that forgiveness, but we'll get there. Uh, Another thing that we all believe is that God saves us by grace. Uh, Judaism is not a works-based religion. I heard that a lot. Um, We probably all heard that a lot. But that is not how Jewish people practice Judaism. It's not how Jewish theologians teach and understand Judaism um, they, they believe that God forgives and God shows grace. And they actually believe that the reason God gave us the law, as we talked about before, was not to condemn, but as a gift as a way to rescue. And so they, they believe sort of in the same way we do that the way that you receive forgiveness from God is just by God, giving it to you, not by anything that you did. The Jewish people don't believe that they earned God's grace in any way, just like we do. Now, again, there are lots of differences in there but that is actually something that we are we sort of see eye to eye on. okay finally uh, last and this is again a big difference particularly from the last two religions we've studied is that the world is going somewhere good. Um, most Jewish people believe in some sort of end that is in the future where God is going to come and put things right. Uh, again, how we get there uh, what that looks like, how far away it is is up for debate but unlike the other religions we actually we, we all we believe that there's kind of a trajectory to this thing. Okay, things that Jews and Christians both value. We both value having a relationship with God. I have a good friend who was talking with a a Jewish friend of his, and he said, what's the most offensive thing evangelical people do when they try to evangelize you? And that Jewish person said, they assume that I do not have a relationship with God. And that was really interesting. So, take heed, the most offensive thing that that Jewish person has ever encountered is evangelicals assuming that they do not have a relationship with God. We also both value living out God's way in the world. God's way, God's law, God's instruction, God's Torah. We both value repenting of sin and seeking forgiveness. And we both value God's character. And what I mean by that are our our understandings of God are so similar that when we talk about things like peace and justice, uh, those are coming from the same source, the same kind of God. And so we can have agreement about those and we can work towards common good and we can do that kind of stuff. We're almost out of time. i got to get to the differences. Here we go. Where do we disagree? Uh, first of all, we disagree about practice and belief. Uh, we think that there are things that you need to know about God, that you need to believe about God. Uh, and we do certainly value good practice as well, but um, we don't think that just doing the right things uh, in and of itself is enough. Uh, we also disagree about the nature of God. Jewish people confess God is one, but that's it. Christian people say God is one and God is three, and that particularly matters when we begin to discussing the person and the work of Jesus. Um, so, uh, man, I wish we had more time for this. Nature of the Torah. The Jewish people understand the Torah is something that God gave to Moses on Sinai. It might be oral, it might be written, but that's all. that's it. Uh, we understand that the Torah, God's way, actually became human. That when we talk about Jesus, we're talking about the way of God, the Torah of God who took on flesh and walked among us and actually showed us how we were supposed to live. Showed us the way. Didn't just tell us, didn't just give us a record of it, but actually showed us among us. So when when we talk about the Torah with Jewish people, we have to understand that what's at stake for us is that we believe that's Jesus. And we believe that the best picture of who God is and what God's way in the world looks like is the person of Jesus. And then, of course, we also disagree about the nature of the Messiah and that we believe that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Jewish covenants, uh, that he is the Messiah, and that he is the one who is coming back, again, to set the world right. And Jewish people do not believe that. Or if they did, they would be Messianic Jewish. Um, so, okay. Uh, we've got to do this. All right. How, to build, how not to build a friendship. Do not do these things with people. Okay, modern Judaism is not Old Testament Judaism. It's not, okay? There's a relationship there, just like there's a relationship in Christianity and Judaism, but, mm-mm. Uh, Be very careful how you engage a tradition. If you're invited to a Seder meal or to any other kind of Jewish thing, uh, err on the side of treating it as a Jewish thing. Don't say, like, oh, I'm a Christian. We can do this stuff, too. I mean, we sort of can, but, again, we just... We have a lot. We have a lot of uh, baggage when it comes to dealing with Jewish people and appropriating their beliefs and things like that. So, uh, eating a Seder meal does not make you look make you more like Jesus. Um, it can be a really cool experience, and you can learn a lot from it. But when you're when you sort of are engaging in Jewish traditions, you're really learning more about the world of the Scriptures. Um, you're really learning. You're not. You're not so much. Um, you're not you're not so much uh, doing this thing because you're also a Jew, and and we have to be really careful about it, which is actually the the other thing. Don't say we are all really Jewish now. Okay, now Paul in the Book of Romans said Gentiles are now grafted into the people of God, so those who were once far from God are now near to God. So there is a theological you you can you can chapter and verse where you could say well really we're all just Jewish now, okay. But again, we sort of lost the right to say that when we spent several hundred years persecuting and killing Jewish people. So to say that now, again, if if what you're trying to do is build a truth-seeking, mutually respectful friendship, this is not where you start. This might be a really cool conversation after you've established a friendship with them, and after you've sort of built some common understanding, but please don't lead with this. That That will be very offensive. Okay? Um, Now, it is true that we are grafted into the people of God. It is true that we now, even though we're Gentiles, are part of God's people, and we are to present God to the world also. But, again, there's just a lot lot of baggage that comes along with interacting with a Jewish person, and we want to be respectful and careful. So, okay, uh, I have one more piece, but we're going to skip it because we are way out of time. Um, if you have any questions, stick around. I'm happy to talk to you, but I know a lot of you have kids that you got to go pick up and stuff like that. Thank you so much for tonight. You guys were awesome. Uh, next week we're doing Islam, so uh, I know you'll want to come back for that. See you guys all next week.